your regularly scheduled program for a special announcement. The United States is headed for an entitlement crisis. Social Security and Medicare are going broke. You are going to have to pay the bill. You are going to have to pay the bill. Welcome to the Debt Dialogues, where you'll learn about the coming entitlement crisis, how it affects you, and what you can do about it. Debt Dialogues. Here's your host, Ayn Rand Institute fellow, Don Watkins. My guest today is Stephen Moore. Steve is chief economist at the Heritage Foundation and was formerly on the editorial board of the Wall Street Journal. Steve, welcome to the Debt Dialogues. Thank you for having me. So I want to focus mostly today on uh, the state of taxes in America, but I want to start by getting your big-picture view of the economy today. The left paints an incredibly bleak picture in which the rich are getting richer, the poor and middle class are stagnating or worse, mobility is declining, and uh, things aren't going to get better unless we engage in some massive program to fight economic inequality. What do you think? Well, the economy has done pretty lousy under Obama. There's no question about it. And it is true the rich have gotten richer and the poor have gotten poorer under Obama, which is interesting because everything President Obama is trying to do is to redistribute income. But just goes to prove when you try to redistribute income and stop focusing on growth, you don't get growth or fairness. Um, but the economy is starting to pick up now. I am getting a little bit more optimistic about the trend. I mean, we were in this really very slow growth rut for the last five or six years of, you know, 2% growth coming out of this um, terrible recession. Now we've seen ramp, growth ramp up to, you know, 3%, which is still too slow, but it feels a lot better than uh, 2%. But we've got to be focusing like a laser beam. Uh, how do we get growth up to the 4 to 5% range, which will raise incomes and, and alleviate some of this incredible middle-class anxiety, which led to these amazing election results in November? So let's talk taxes, because I think there's a lot of confusion on that subject. And we haven't, that's one thing we really haven't addressed too much in this podcast. So there's an impression many people have namely that the rich aren't paying their fair share, however that's defined. And they'll point, for instance, that top marginal tax rate today is low compared to 30 or 50 years ago. Well, first of all, I mean, the idea that the rich aren't, quote, playing, paying their fair share is really kind of a preposterous claim. And if you look at our federal income tax today, you know, the top 1% pay a little under 40% of the income tax. The top 10% pay close to 70% of the income tax. So, you know, you've got one out of 10, one out of 100 Americans paying, you know, almost 40 cents on the dollar of the income tax. The bottom 40% pay almost no income tax at all. So, uh, you know, how, do you want to actually have a tax system that that relies even more heavily on one or two or three percent. I don't think that's healthy for the economy. I don't think it's healthy for a democracy for just a few to shoulder the burden of paying for government. It's, it should be these should be shared costs. I'm not saying we shouldn't have, you know, the rich paying more. But when you have the rich paying, you know, a gargantuan share of the tax system. I mean, if you look at the top 20 industrialized countries, this might surprise some of your listeners, but the United States in the, in the top one, two or three percent, they pay a larger share of the taxes in the United States than in, uh, virtually any other country. How does it, uh, so that's focused on income taxes. What happens if we include payroll taxes, which fall more heavily relatively on lower paying right. workers? 
Um, it changes things a little bit, but not significantly. Even the Congressional Budget Office has come to this conclusion that, yeah, it's more equalized because you pay your, your uh, payroll tax, you know, on your first dollar earned, and it's capped at 120000 But even when you take into account the payroll tax, it is a system that is very heavily skewed to the very richest 5 to 10 percent. So we've talked about who's paying the bulk of the taxes. One other way that people will think about it is in terms of the actual burden on the individual. And I guess part of the argument is that the average amount of a person's income paid by the rich is by their lights too small. Can you give us some numbers or magnitudes on what's the real burden on a person at different levels of income? Yeah, that's a good question. So there's also been some really good government statistics on this that's fine that, um, you know, the system is highly progressive so that, you know, as a share of your income, as your income goes up, your tax burden goes up. So the top 1% pay, uh, you know, a much larger share of their income. I don't remember the exact number, somewhere around 25 to 30% of their income goes to taxes, whereas people in the bottom, say 20%, pay very small percent of their uh, income in taxes, you know, four or five percent. So it's it's a very um, steeply progressive system, even accounting for, um, you know, the fact that the rich have a higher income. Their share of income paid is higher than their share of income paid by uh, lower income people. And what I want to do, by the way, is I want a tax system that is a flat tax that is, uh, you know, a single rate, maybe 15 to 18 uh, percent, where that gets rid of loopholes. So every corporation and every American has to pay their, quote, fair share. Um, you would exempt low-income people from a lot of the tax. And as your income goes up, you would pay um, you know, more and more tax. The best way to balance the budget is to get more rich people. You know, you have people climbing up the economic ladder because as they do better financially, they end up paying more taxes. And of course, there's the issue of state and local uh, taxes too. And uh, I mean, I think wealthier people tend to live in very high tax places like New York. Um, how, How does that shape things up? Particularly, does that change things if we compare it internationally? Mm, I haven't looked at those statistics, but what's interesting to me when you look at the state and local tax burdens, uh, you know, we have 50 states that have 50 separate tax systems, and we have nine states that have no income tax at all. So they raise their money through mostly property taxes and sales taxes. And those are states like Florida and Texas and New Hampshire and Wyoming and Nevada and Washington State and a few others. And it turns out... Those states significantly outcompete states with high income taxes, states like New York and California, my home state of Illinois, um, <clears throat> New Jersey, Connecticut. And if you want to see the adverse impact of high tax rates, look at the states because they're losing businesses, they're losing their higher income earners, they're losing workers. That's not – you don't want to – in other words, we want to make America look more like Texas, which has no income taxes and creating huge numbers of jobs. We don't want to make America look like New York, which is you know, flat on its back economically. Well, and we've even had some controversy over companies – not, not exactly fleeing the country, but reorganizing so that yeah. they uh, are being taxed in other countries. Can you talk about a little bit about that controversy? Yeah, this is uh, uh, called, the technical term for this is called corporate inversions, and that's just a fancy term for saying that American companies like Burger King, Pfizer, 
um, Walgreens, uh, and many others, are basically threatening to or already have um, renounced, essentially renounced their U.S. citizenship, <laughs> and basically said, "Well, we're not going to be an American company any longer. We're going to be, we're going to merge with a company from, you know, Canada or Ireland or England or India and become a foreign country company, so that we don't have to pay these high federal uh, corporate taxes." Um, I hate to see that happen. I think it's a, an outrage when that happens, quite frankly. And I think what we ought to do is that we ought to. Um, move towards a system where, uh, you know, the United States doesn't have the highest corporate tax. It's a, the best way to keep jobs here in the United States is to cut our corporate tax. So instead of companies leaving the United States, they would want to come here. That Well, that reminds me of another issue. So you wrote a book a, a few years ago, I think the fairest of them all. And one of the most famous claims about taxes is Warren Buffett's claim that, you know, he paid lower taxes than his uh, mm-hmm. secretary. And, uh, of course, if you look only at capital gains and dividends, which mainly the the rich pay on their income, um, those are quite low. But you made a really fascinating point about why you can't only look at that rate. Can you explain that one a little bit? Well, because, you know, how does Warren Buffett make his money? He makes his money by investing in and owning companies. Um, and, by the way, there's nobody better in the world that, that, you know, picking winners uh, and investing in the right companies than Warren Buffett. He's become a multi-billionaire because he's so savvy in terms of uh, being able to figure out, you know, where you can get the highest returns on your investments. Um, but so he doesn't actually get much of a wage or salary income. Most of his income is through the, uh, the returns that he gets on these businesses. And the point I made was that, well, most of these are corporations, and those corporations pay tax. So, you know, when the corporation pays tax, that's paid essentially by the owners of the company. And he wasn't counting any of those taxes when he was doing his calculations. And if you did count those calculations, you know, that his his tax burden would be significantly higher, much higher than uh, the tax burden of his secretary. But there's another point that's related to this, which is that Warren Buffett and, you know, Bill Gates and some of the, you know, wealthiest people in the country, the multi-billionaires, <clears throat> they take advantage of the, one of the biggest loopholes in the tax system, which is that what they do, <clears throat> excuse me, is they create these gigantic foundations and trusts that, uh, you know, oftentimes have billions of dollars in them. And that money will never be taxed. It will never be taxed. And so that's a huge loophole in terms of if you want the wealthy to, quote, pay their fair share, then let's get rid of this loophole where you can take these gigantic charitable contributions and give the money away to the Sierra Club or to, you know, uh, some other organization, you know, the Center for American Progress, and never have that money taxed. I think that loophole should be capped or, or entirely reduced, and that would be a way to force people like Bill Gates and Warren Buffett and others to pay a, a larger share of their income in taxes. Well, of course, and if they always think that they're under tax, there's nothing preventing them from writing a check to the U.S. Treasury. Of course, of course, and that's you know that annoys liberals to no end when you say you know all these they, these uh, liberals. So I think I'm not paying enough income tax. Well, Warren Buffett should pay more income tax. I mean, he should write a check to the IRS for a billion dollars. You know, if he wants to, why? Well, what he wants is not to pay more tax himself. He wants other people to pay more taxes, and that that's highly hypocritical. Um. Speaking of, so the the corporate tax is interesting because it sound to many people it strikes them as well wouldn't it I mean the corporate tax is great because that way the corporations are paying for it rather than individuals. Yeah. 
Right. Yeah, no, that's true. And it's, it's just a hidden tax. I mean, when you tax businesses, the businesses are in money, business to make money, right? I mean, that's just, they're in business to make a profit. That's, they can't exist if they don't make a profit. So if you impose high taxes on them, they have, uh, you know, several uh, responses to that. One is that they can try to pass some of the costs of those taxes onto the consumer. So, you know, you're, you as a consumer, whether you buy a Big Mac or whether you buy a pizza or whether you buy a Ford Bronco, if you have high corporate taxes, you're indirectly paying for those when you when you uh, purchase the products. But the other thing that these companies can do is they can move. You know, as we were just talking about, just as people move from uh, California and New York to Texas to pay less taxes, businesses move out of the United States to places like Canada and Ireland and other nations to pay less tax. And this is one of the reasons I want a flat tax. So we incentivize businesses to stay here because this is about jobs. You know, I want American workers to be the highest paid workers in the world. I want jobs coming to the United States, not flowing out of the United States. And I've made the case that if you support our 35% corporate income tax, you are unpatriotic because you're costing American workers jobs. So what are some of the uh, – excuse me um, – what sort of taxes are the most economically destructive? And, and I mean you, you suggest that a flat tax is going to be preferable, but um, on the other side, what are the most negative ones that exist? Well, the most negative taxes would – I would start with the estate tax. That is by far – the death tax is by far the most immoral and economically destructive tax because it means if you build up – a business over your lifetime and keep reinvesting in that business rather than going out and spending your money. Uh, and you, by the way, you pay your taxes as you earn the money. Um, but if you reinvest that money in the business, then when you die, you know, let's say with a eight or $10 million or $50 million business, then the government steps in and can take as much as 35 or 40% of that uh, literally out of your coffin. And that is highly destructive to the process of uh, increasing saving and increasing business investment in this country. I think income taxes are horrible taxes because if you think about it, when you're taxing income, what are you taxing? You're taxing people on what they invest, on how hard they work, on how many hours they work, on, uh, on building a business. Those, you, don't, you want to tax bad things, not good things. So uh, it, what, what I would do is tax people on what, I, what they take out of the economy, that is what they consume, not what they put into the economy, which, of course, is their work effort and their investment and their grit and determination. Yeah, I mean, Ayn Rand made, a, I think, a really important point that aside from just the evil of taking people's property, one of the most destructive things about a lot of taxes, including income taxes, is that it makes it much harder for people to rise because the whole key to rising is earning more. And then if you have a yep. business reinvesting it and yep. and growing and that you start to get stagnation and it becomes harder for innovators to to rise i think what do you think about that kind of yeah and we've seen i think that's a good point and one of the things that's been disturbing out about our economy right now is that we're seeing less business formation so fewer people are going out and starting businesses and there are a lot of reasons for that not just taxes the regulatory burden and just people being more risk averse uh and but that's a problem. <laughs> There's an old saying, you know, without employers, you can't have jobs, right? And, you know, my old boss, uh, Dick Armey, used to say that, you know, uh, that liberals love uh, love jobs, but they hate businesses. You know, you can't have one without the other. And we've got to be much more nurturing 
of businesses, especially small businesses, which really create the, the, so many of the new jobs in this economy instead of you know, imposing all these new costs. By the way, just as we're talking, I'm writing a piece right now about the Obama administration releasing 3,000, 3,000 new rules, mostly affecting businesses and consumers, and those are going to stifle business creation in America. Yeah, you say the left likes jobs, not businesses. They, they, they like small businesses, but I guess to, with apologies to Grover Norquist, uh, so long as they're small enough to drown in a bathtub. Um, the, Obama promised early on that he wouldn't raise taxes on anybody earning less than $250,000. What's become of that promise? Well, Obamacare blew that promise away because now we're discovering all these new um, you know, taxes within the Obamacare system that are affecting you know, people in the middle class. So um, we're seeing um, people fe- facing all sorts of um, increases in their health care costs, taxes on their health insurance plans, um, and other types of nickel and dime taxes that are really – negatively affecting the finances uh, of American um, families. So we're not, uh, he did, that's not a promise that he kept, and we ought to repeal Obamacare and start over. And you could probably come up with a new system that would, um, that would, uh, in my opinion, cover more people and yet do it at a much lower cost to the American worker and to the American employers. One of the reasons we're seeing a slowdown in job creation in this post-recession over the past ones, I think, is because Obamacare imposes all these new costs on employers if you hire new workers. And that's why they're capping at 50 workers. They're, they're cap, capping hours worked at 30 hours a week. Those things, at a time when you have 15 million unemployed people, those rules make no sense at all. Yeah, for sure. Um, I was in a debate uh, with some law professor about a year ago, and he came out with a claim. I had never heard this before, um, that you know taxes are at a 50- or 60-year low. And I, I had no clue what he was actually talking about. Cause, but apparently the claim is that if you look at taxes as a percent of GDP, at least at the only the federal level um, – the argument is that they are at a, a lower than mm-hmm. they've been in that time mm-hmm. period. Can you bring a little clarity and put that in context? Well, what happened was we got you know crunched by this recession, which was one of the worst recessions since the Great Depression, or at least since the you know late seventies. And when you have a significant retrenchment in the economy, like we saw in um, two thousand eight, and two thousand nine, and two thousand ten, um, your your tax revenues fall very. Um, uh, precipitously, and that's what happened in that period. So the share taxes, a share of GDP, I, I don't remember the exact numbers, but they fell from something like 18, 19, 20 percent to 14 or 15 percent. So it is true there was a temporary period um, in that recession when tax revenues fall fell very. Um, very significantly, but they're rising again now, and they'll rise back to, according to the budget office, they'll rise back to their historical norm and slightly even higher. So um, uh, Thomas Piketty in his uh, blockbuster bestseller, The Capital in the 21st Century, has come out for proposals of, you know, raising the uh, marginal, top marginal income tax to uh, upwards of 80%, a tax mm-hmm. on wealth of up to 10%. Can you make some broad comments about 
the effect of tax hikes, particularly once they get to the range that even he labels confiscatory? Um, it's really so troubling to me that anyone takes this book and this French economist seriously. I mean, he is truly a dangerous, you know, it's truly dangerous ideas. I mean, he has the right to say them, but, you know, the fact that the New York Times and the Washington Post and so many liberals actually take him seriously is very, very disturbing to me because I, I would make the case the one most important lesson we've learned over the last 30 years is that tax rates are really important. I mean, John F. Kennedy, uh, proved that in the 1960s. Ronald Reagan proved it with the massive expansion in the economy back in the 1980s when tax rates were cut. Now, it wasn't just as tax rate cuts. It was the deregulation of the economy and getting inflation under control. But but taxes are a significant um, uh, disincentive to invest and to create businesses and to create employment. And the whole debate that we've had and that we just talked about, about these corporate inversions, these companies leaving the United States, I mean, doesn't that prove, would liberals open their eyes and say, wait a minute, there's a problem here. Our rate is higher than the rates anywhere else, so companies are leaving here and they're going to these other countries. We can see that with our two you know, two eyes, and yet Piketty's coming out with this book saying, let's raise the rates from, you know, to 50, 60, 70, 80 percent. Um, that would destroy our economy. The, we, we would, it would decapitate the businesses. It would make America an incredibly uncompetitive place, and we would end up like Europe in a, in a stagnation that just never ends. Well, what I find fascinating about it, uh, among other things, is that I don't know the details of this. Maybe you do. In France, um, they a, was a year or two ago, did impose something like a 75% uh, tax on the very wealthy. And by all accounts, it really hasn't led to France leading the charge of economic progress lately. Yeah, so France, I mean, France, I don't know all the details of this, but they did raise tax on uh, millionaires under, um, I think it was under Halan, and um, it didn't work at all. Uh, rich people ended up leaving, and their revenues actually went down. They didn't go up. And you know, look, Europe is a perfect example of what happens when you have big, obese welfare states, when you have massive pensions, when you have reg regulations in all of your businesses where you can't hire and fire workers, and where you have, you know, sky-high tax rates on the rich to pay for it all. Europe is in a, in a very severe and deep recession. They can't get out of it. They are not growing at all. And why in the world would we want to do anything that France does, or why would we want to, you know, follow the lead of uh, countries like Spain and Italy and other countries that are in severe recession? I mean, that makes no sense. Our economy is growing much faster now than the Europeans are. Um, we don't want to follow the losers. They should be following us. Well, that raises, I guess we can end on this kind of broad question I'll throw at you. We can't really talk about taxes without talking about government spending and clearly, as long as we continue to have enormous amounts of spending at the uh, federal, state, and local levels, um, we're going to have high tax rates one way or the other. What do you see as the main areas where we could rein in um, the spending that has, I mean, really risen over the last certainly 50 years, but uh, 100 years? Well, um, I think that you 
If you look at what's happened in the last five or six years on what we call discretionary spending, which is the non-entitlement um, programs, uh, you know, like on health care and Social Security and, and welfare programs, um, th- there actually have been some pretty significant restraints on that spending. And spending as a share of GDP has actually come down under this Republican Congress. It's a great uh, triumph. The problem has been the biggest you know, areas of growth of the budget are now Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, Obamacare, um, welfare, food stamps, unemployment insurance, um, and, and interest on the debt. <laughs> and those are the programs we better get under control because those are supposed to double over the next 10 years. So we need to privatize Social Security. We need to move towards a system of personal accounts so every young worker in America can put their money into an individual account that they own themselves and the government can never take care of them, uh, can take that money uh, away from them. We need to uh, obviously repeal Obamacare and put in something which is much more sensible with subsidies for low-income people but uh, controls costs of health care. We need to turn Medicare into a system that is for, you know, more for not, you know, why should Warren Buffett and Bill Gates get Medicare? That makes no sense. Uh, so we should uh, make sure that it goes only to people who need it. Um, and on welfare, we have to completely reform the welfare programs and move them to work requirements. Number one, every welfare program should have a work requirement for able-bodied Americans who are collecting a check from the government um, for not working. We have to shift those incentives away from not working towards working, and you can dramatically reduce the costs of those programs and build better lives for the people who are on those programs now. My guest today has been Stephen Moore. Steve, thanks for being part of the Dead Dialogues. Thank you. Happy to do it. This was an interesting and in some ways challenging interview for me. Ayn Rand approaches the issue of taxation from a very different perspective than virtually everyone else today. And so I wanted to say just a few words about her view and then relate them to the points Steve made. The key place where Rand talks about taxes is in her essay, In the Virtue of Selfishness, Government Financing in a Free Society. And so let me quote just a little bit from that. Quote, in a fully free society, taxation, or to be exact, payment for government services would be voluntary. Since the proper services of a government, the police, armed forces, the law courts are uh, demonstrably needed by individual citizens and affect their interests directly, the citizens would and should be willing to pay for such services as they pay for insurance. Skipping ahead a little bit. The principle of voluntary government financing rests on the following premises that the government is not the owner of the citizen's income and therefore cannot hold a blank check on that income, that the nature of the proper governmental services must be constitutionally defined and delimited, leaving the government no power to enlarge the scope of its services at its own arbitrary discretion. Consequently, the principle of voluntary government financing regards the government as the servant, not the ruler of the citizens, as an agent who must be paid for his services not as a benefactor whose services are gratuitous, who dispenses something for nothing, unquote. So in other words, Ayn Rand is an opponent of the idea that government can take your income on the grounds that it owns it by force, but she also thinks that citizens have a moral obligation to pay for the value and benefit they get from the government and that this can and should occur voluntarily. So, In our view, there's no such issue as are people paying their fair share of taxes. This totally switches the perspective from government as servant to government as master. 
the implication is that we owe government. And then the debate is, have we made good on our debt? The reason I want to do this interview with Steve, then, is not in order to show that the rich are paying their fair share. The value of this interview is that it highlights two things that are absolutely worth highlighting. First, the dishonesty of the various claims amounting to the notion that the rich are undertaxed or getting away with something and putting the burden on everybody else. And second, I think the interview helped highlight just how damaging taxes are to our lives already and how much more damaging they could be if those who want to raise our taxes get their way. But it's important to keep in mind that high taxes are a symptom. They're a symptom of a government that's grown far beyond its proper functions. So it's a mistake to focus on taxes, and indeed I think what goes on often is that what the other side does is rather than want to debate that what should be the purpose of government, are these programs that they're supporting legitimate or not, they want to deflect it with all sorts of claims about how rich people are getting away not paying taxes. What we have to really question and focus on is, what should the government do? Because so long as we accept the necessity of a gigantic regulatory welfare state, there's no alternative but to have a gigantic tax burden. And with that, it's time to bring this podcast to a close. If you enjoy this podcast, please take a minute to give us a review on iTunes. To learn more, you can visit endthedebtdraft.com. And for the latest, I encourage you to like our Facebook page, facebook.com slash debtdraft and let the world know that it's time to put an end to entitlement exploitation. See you next time. Debt Dialogues is property of the Ayn Rand Institute. Its content is intended for private use only.